email todayradio at rte.ie. The much-anticipated new Centre Mental Hospital is set to open its doors before the end of the year in Portran in North Dublin. This means an increase in bed capacity by two-thirds of what we currently have. The CMH provides secure beds for those who require treatment in conditions of special therapeutic safety and security and it's the only designated treatment centre under the Criminal Law Insanity Act 2006. Professor Harry Kennedy, Executive Clinical Director of the Central Mental Hospital, joins me now in studio and thank you very much for coming into us this morning, Harry. Um, so the beds are going to go from 102, which is what they're at at the moment, up to 170. Um, is, is that a lot? Is that as much as we need? Uh, good morning, Sarah. Thank, thanks for having having me in. It, it's a big improvement on what we have. It's about half what we estimate we need. Um, currently, we have 102 beds, which is two per 100,000 for a population of 5 million. Most mod- modern European countries would have 10. Um, so this will take us up to 3.5. Um, there is eventually a plan to build some more smaller centres. Cruz, they're not actually the solution, the long-term solution either. They're the solution to a different problem. It gets us a bit forward. What we will do is we'll go from currently we're down to 20 admissions a year and the new hospital will get us back up to about 140 admissions a year. So that's huge progress. But we fear that it will quickly silt up again because we're getting more, as as the service has a reputation for being progressive, we get more and more people pleading not guilty by reason of insanity in the courts. uh, And they occupy beds for a very long time. So we will very quickly silt up and we'll be back down to 20 admissions a year, which would be a huge problem again. So why has capacity been increasing to the extent it has over, over the last 10 years? The Criminal Law and Sanity Act was reformed in a very positive way in 2010, particularly, um, and that has made this a more accessible, more progressive service for people who have severe mental illness and come before the courts. Um, that, that you know, the demand is a measure of is a measure of success, but the difficulty we have is that there are more and more severely mentally ill people turning up before the courts, and that's because elsewhere in the service we have slashed the number of general adult psychiatric beds um, very, very quickly over the last 15 years following Vision for Change. Um, and we've gone, Vision for Change said we should go down to about 17 beds per 100,000 for general adults. Um, actually, when we got down to about 20, the brakes had to be slammed on. Um, what, it, what, was the, um, what was the reasoning for doing that? It, it, was, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And one of the problems in psychiatry is that good ideas are never good enough. So psychiatry is a medical subject based on scientific evidence, but instead what we have is a mental health service based on random good ideas. Um, And that's pretty much the, the, the key of the problem. So, you know, Ireland's medical schools, the teaching hospitals are centres of excellence. They're up there with the best in the world, actually improving things, not just keeping up to international standards, but bettering standards all the time. Mental health, as as we're obliged to call it in this sort of Orwellian language, is outside that system. It's in a system which is not related to the teaching hospitals. It's managed by lay people. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a system in which doctors have a very small say. Um, and this really fascinating lack of criticism for what happens in it. So, you know, we've gone down, Vision for Change said we should go down to 17 beds per 100,000. Sharing the vision 
hilariously actually still says that it's, a, you know, that it's, it's noticeable that we haven't gone down to 17, but then actually goes on and says, actually, we're under huge strain. So it sort of partially recognises this problem but without wh- naming the what problem. What was the plan for the people who then couldn't get access to adult psychiatric beds? If you're reducing the beds, as you're saying, where were they meant to go? What was the plan? And, and they, why aren't they going to those places? People thought they could be managed in the community. Okay. And uh, now two problems arose. The first is that the community services were never provided. So you can save money by closing hospital beds. That was a very money-orientated decision. The money never transferred into the community. Today, and with there was Sarah never McInerney. evidence that you could do it all in the community anyway. Um, countries that have very good, progressive, well-resourced community services also have lots and lots of beds. Okay. Um, so they there was no room for them in the community, people with um, serious psychiatric illness, um, and now there was no room for them in beds, adult psychiatric beds. So what happened to those people, or what has been happening to those people? Various things. Certainly young men with severe mental illnesses, like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, a lot of them are turning up in prison, which brings you back to our situation. Now, one of the other things we're learning is that across the world, in places like Scandinavia, where they carefully measure their outcomes, they have shown that over the last 25 years, a thing called the standardised mortality ratio in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, in other words, the likelihood that people will die of their disease, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, is much worse than the general population and getting worse year by year. During the same 25-year period, survival in cancer, in cardiac diseases, in respiratory diseases, which, remember, are inside that teaching hospital excellence medical domain, have gotten better and better and better. So across the world, whatever we're doing at the moment has had some benefits. It's full of good ideas. But when you look at really hard outcomes, it's not working. And do we know why? No. Um, it's not, interestingly, we, we know that it's not just increased suicide risk. Finland has managed to reduce the suicide risk in patients with schizophrenia, mainly by um, using a lot of modern medicines, a medical solution. But what we uh, do know, actually, is that people are dying of premature ageing in various ways. They die of cancers, they die of smoking-related diseases of the heart and the lungs. Um, perhaps one of the most successful things we've done in recent years Uh, is that in January of this year, just before COVID, we banned smoking from the hospital. And interestingly enough, everybody thought that would cause huge difficulties and objections from the patients. Patients loved it and are hugely pleased with it. One of the patients um, actually said, I can run up two flights of stairs now. Mm. Why is that? (laughs) Why Um, could that be? And and so that sort of health orientated in the positive sense that sort of thing works. Okay, but just can I get, bring you back then briefly to, I suppose, th- th- this web of, d- of different services that if, if one side breaks down, what's happening to yourselves and where, where it leads to. So if you have adults um, with psychiatric illnesses who are no longer getting the services they need in the community or through the health services, um, are they more likely then to end up um, in, in committing a crime if they're not getting the services they need? Or, you know, how, how, what's the chain of events here that you're seeing? It's, 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 it's a fairly straightforward thing. Uh, it, interestingly, COVID has been a natural experiment. So young people with schizophrenia get alienated from their families because they don't take treatment, because they become paranoid. They end up homeless on the streets. They get arrested for minor things, public order offences, 
and then sometimes they get arrested for very serious things. So a lot of our activity in the prisons, which is a huge part of our work, is finding people who come into the prisons, severely mentally ill, we screen everyone who comes in, and getting them back into community mental health teams. It's difficult to find beds for them, but we get them into their community mental health teams where we can. Those who've done really serious things have to wait for a bed in the central mental hospital, and that's an increasingly long and distressing list. So as recently as yesterday, we admitted a man from Mount Joy who uh, my colleague, who you might know, Professor Mohan, saw him yesterday. I saw him for a second opinion. It was difficult to understand the words he spoke. They were so confused and jumbled, grandiose. Um, he's had one injection of medication, which we used powers under the Mental Health Act and Criminal Law and Sanity Act to give without his consent. Today, he is a new man and thanking us for having done that. The most common message we get from real voices, from the families of our patients, is to, to thank us and to say, why didn't we get this sort of service before? Mm. But that sort of service is being steadily taken away. It's very expensive. It's very difficult to provide. And if somebody has the good idea that we could do something much more cheaply in the community, that tends to get the policy nod. Again, where do policies come from? There, It's extremely difficult, I think, for ministers to hear psychiatric advice from doctors. There are no psychiatrists in the Department of Health. In fact, most policy, the idea was that policy would be made in the Department of Health and implemented in the HSE. But in effect, real policy, what really happens, comes operationally within the HSE. Um, and it, it's all unintended consequence, or sometimes you wonder, you know, what is it? Why do we find ourselves in this position? So is the is the reality then that's, that's playing out as a result of all of this in your experience that our prisons are full of people with severe mental illness who would not be there if the services were available for them? It's, 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 it's really complicated, but yes. So at, the, at any day, there are about 250 people with severe mental illness out of the three or 4,000 people in prison who we are following in our clinics. Now, some of those, if they were in the community, we would be following in the community, but a list of them really need to be in hospital, and we aren't able to do that. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really complicated and difficult. COVID was really an interesting experience. Um, suddenly, overnight, the fairly diffused, um, extreme democracy of management in the mental health services gave way to doctors and nurses getting on with it. Um, during that period, we, we had to take a number of restrictive measures. We stopped visitors coming into the hospital, as did nursing homes, as did general hospitals. We haven't had a single case in the hospital yet. We, we live in fear of the day when we might because it would spread very quickly in a, in, a, in a confined place like a hospital. Prisons have had the same success, interestingly enough, in Ireland whereas they've had awful experiences, for instance, in the United States and some other countries. So mm. we have done well by doing simple, basic, medically orientated things. And how have patients reacted to the pandemic in the hospital? They, 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 what, what I've been told walking around the wards is that patients feel safe. They miss their families. They're able to access them through um, Skype, um, but they feel safe. So then in terms of the future for psychiatric hospital beds here and, and what we need and what we're likely to get, what's, what's your view on that? Well, 
for, I'm, sharing the vision is really interesting because it, it's really difficult to understand where it comes from in some respects. It does say that we need ICRU. Sorry, sharing the vision for people who don't know is the latest version uh, policy. Of policy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But it, it's it's a very demedicalized view. It it just about understands that we need to maintain basic quality. But it doesn't address issues about excellence, about making things better. The Joint Committee on the Future of Mental Health Care from the Oireachtas did get this and specifically recommended the necessity of a centre for excellence. We can't be cut off from the mainstream of medical care for severe illnesses. But actually, there's a kind of Orwellian language. You know, if I write a business case or a policy about patients, it gets sent back to me to change that to service users. Now, patients have clearly defined rights under the Mental Health Act and the Medical Practitioners Act. Service users are clients um, with no defined rights except maybe consumer rights, which you know are irrelevant. Mm. Um, we have to talk about mental health. We can't talk about psychiatry. We talk about mental health. We can't talk about schizophrenia and bipolar disease. Yet mortality in schizophrenia and bipolar disease appears to be getting worse over the last 25 years. Interestingly, the Scandinavian countries deliberately set out to measure those things. We can't measure those things in Ireland because we don't capture the data for it. We don't capture the data for the mortality of people no. with mental illness. No. And where do you think this is all coming from then, Harry? Is it back to what, what, what you're saying in terms of the people who are working on it in the Department of Health, the fact that there's maybe not a psychiatrist there? Would something like that go a long way to having psychiatric experience in the Department of Health in, in terms of drawing up policy? It would be revolutionary. If, for instance, the Minister for Finance has an expert panel of economists, and, you know, why wouldn't he? That, that, that's exactly what they ought to have. There's nothing remotely like that anywhere in health, not just in psychiatry. In terms of the wider population then and COVID-19 and what it might have, there's been a lot of discussion over the last um, couple of months about what it is doing to people and the effects that people are having in terms of both uh, mental health and mental illness. And I know you do make a distinction. There's an obvious distinction between the two. Um, But what is your view on what we might be able to expect over the coming months and and indeed maybe years from what has been happening and what is continuing to happen? We we need a short, medium and long-term plan. And really it's the medium and long-term uh, it's very complex. I mean, one of the problems that plagues mental health is populism. You get simple solutions to complex problems. You get promises of perfect solutions, uh, you know, one solution. Um, you get lack of diversity, curiously enough. I mean, you end up with, instead of managing a hospital, you're, you get management systems brought in from industry. Uh, you know, a hospital is not a factory, nor is it run like a junior common room. A clinic is not a shop, you know, and it can't be run like a men's shed. They're different things. They're Mm. different solutions for different problems. But do you see this wave that we're hearing about, a wave of mental health and mental illness problems coming coming towards us? Would you anticipate something like that? Well, I'm preparing to come in to talk to you, Sarah. I I pulled a whole pile of policy documents and and, and exploratory documents. There's very little in them going in the sort of direction that myself or my colleagues would, would think we need to be doing. Okay. There is there is a, a wake-up call about worsening mortality in severe mental illness. And it's not just us. The Scandinavians are the ones identifying this because they've, you know, quite understandably been doing what we're doing. But there, it, we have terrific protections for patients' rights. 
we do also, though, need to be making... Those protections are there so that we can treat people. The man that my colleague Damien Mohan and I saw and treated yesterday and today didn't consent to his medication, but now he's thanking us for it. That's what the protections are about. It's about actually helping people, not just protecting their rights and not helping them. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in to join us to discuss all this this morning. That's Professor Harry Kennedy, who is Executive Clinical Director of the Central Mental Hospital. We'll be back after this. Today with Sarah McInerney on RTE Radio 1.